Our reading this evening comes from John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And in the Pew Bibles, it can be found on page 1064. So that's John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it knew the water, drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. This the first of his miracles, miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Uh, let's um, pray as we come to uh, John chapter 2. Holy Father, we do thank you um, for your word. Thank you particularly for John's gospel, and that in it is all that we need to believe in who the Lord Jesus is. And all uh, that we need to do is believe in him, that we may have life in his name. We pray that you would help us this evening to come humbly to your word uh, with hearts and minds, uh, ready to understand and to believe in who the Lord Jesus is and what he uh, can offer us. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, believing in Jesus today is like believing in fairies uh, down the bottom of your garden. I don't know if uh, you've ever heard somebody say that, maybe at school, uh, in a lesson or college, uh, and in a debate perhaps over lunchtime, or maybe uh, in your workplace, uh, or maybe you've just had a conversation with, uh, like that with your family members. Lots of people um, say today they, don't they, that believing the claims of Jesus Christ today is just wishy-washy, uh, wishful thinking. Christians are blind believers with disengaged brains. Uh, All this stuff about Jesus being the Son of God, the Messiah, uh, the person who's able to give us uh, eternal life in some place called heaven, uh, you may as well believe in fairies down the garden, hadn't you? Now the claims that the Bible makes about Jesus are big claims, regardless of whether you live in the kind of culture that we live in today. Uh, Some might even say that they're bigoted or arrogant uh, claims. Perhaps that's something that uh, you think yourself, I don't know. But 
those of us who are Christians, uh, perhaps you'll know that when you're bombarded with those kind of uh, believing in tooth fairy comments, uh, we can, after a little while, perhaps become a bit unsettled, uh, particularly uh, if you're a younger Christian and you haven't really thought about uh, this before. It can cause us to doubt whether what we uh, believe, what we stand on as Christians, uh, is really credible, uh, whether it's really reasonable um, to believe. And when we begin um, to doubt, at very best, our confidence in all that God's promised us, all that he says in his word, uh, becomes a little bit dented. Uh, Perhaps we become a little bit half-hearted in our Christian lives, uh, and maybe we become a little bit shy in sharing our faith uh, with the world, with our friends. And at worst, our doubts um, can turn into disbelief, and we throw the towel in completely on the Christian faith. don't know if you fit into any of those categories. Well, we've been looking at encounters with Jesus, haven't we, in the evening service, and this next encounter with Jesus helps us uh, to begin to see, or perhaps for some of us, just simply be reminded uh, of the credibility of Jesus' claims. But it doesn't just um, show us the credibility of Jesus' claims, it forces us to consider what our response to Jesus will be, whether we will believe, uh, like we've just been singing. The water into wine, you may well know, some of you will know this miracle very, very well, and it is referred to often as a miracle, which of course it is. We'll come back to miracles in a moment, but John, uh, in verse 11, I don't know if you noticed, he doesn't call it a, a, a miracle, he calls it a sign, the first of Jesus' signs. Now that's quite an important uh, distinction to make, just in case you're one of those people who only uses a sat-nav uh, these days. Uh, let me just remind you, the purpose of signs is to direct us, uh, so that we either change direction if we need to, or uh, we stay on track if we are going already in the right direction. And John tells us the purpose of uh, the signs in his gospel, which this one is, uh, where he tells us, chapter 20, verse 31, that he's written them down so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are huge uh, signs, and this is the first one that we're looking at today. It enables us to believe, John says, who Jesus really is. And not only that, if we turn to Jesus and we believe in him, we're promised an incredible, uh, truly wonderful life. We'll understand more of that life as we look at this um, passage. But look back um, at this encounter with Jesus and this sign that we get given at a Jewish wedding. Jesus is there with his mother and his disciples. Maybe it's some kind of uh, family that they knew. And this awkward news comes through. Jesus, the wine has run out. Thankfully, I don't think that happened yesterday at the wedding that took place. Um, no, I'm getting, I'm getting good signs from David. Well, I was at the wedding yesterday. I was at a wedding a few years ago, um, back up in Derby, and um, there were around 200 guests um, at the reception. And halfway um, through the desserts, I'd had mine, so I was fine, but the mother of the bride was told by the catering staff that they'd not got enough pudding left for around 100 guests. That's when you praise God that there's a Morrison's round the corner. (laughs) 20 minutes later, a selection of Morrison's finest cheese and biscuits were served. 
perhaps not what you'd want at your wedding. The mother of the bride, uh, my family knows them quite well. She was both angry uh, and quite embarrassed, as you can imagine. Wine running out at a Jewish wedding, though, was even more of a big deal. Jewish wedding celebrations, they could go on for a whole week with people coming and going throughout, and they all needed to be fed and watered. So to run out of wine would be incredibly embarrassing. And in Jewish culture, it would be shameful, incredibly shameful as well. And unlike today, where the groom basically has to do nothing apart from turn up uh, to his wedding, make sure he's got a a wife or bride to marry beforehand, that's about it, isn't it, really? Um, But the shame of an empty bar uh, would fall on the groom. It was his responsibility uh, to sort the catering out. I'm very glad that's not the case today. But the party here is grinding to a halt and the groom is about to be covered in shame. And so it might come as a bit of a surprise that Jesus doesn't act straight away. In fact, he says uh, to his uh, mother, well, he responds to the news about this wine by saying, uh, my hour has not yet come. Verse four. Uh, We'll come back to that later. But it might interest you that he doesn't do it straight away. He does, though, go on to perform this miracle, this sign. And just look at the scale of it, will you? Verse 6. Just imagine the situation. Jesus instructs the servants uh, to take these six stone water jars that could hold 20 to 30 gallons each and fill them with water. Now, I did a little bit of math, those of you who do... um, maths maybe at college or have gone on to do maths at university you can tell me if this is right or wrong afterwards don't spend the whole sermon working it out but um, the maximum amount of water used in one of these if let's say it's 20 gallons uh, six jars that's 120 gallons which I worked out was about 540 litres of water now that could be as much could be as much as 180 gallons, which is 810 litres, okay? Now that would work out at about 1,080 standard-sized wine bottles. And we're simply told Jesus has turned that much water into wine. It's a massive uh, miracle, isn't it? It would make a much cheaper wedding if it had happened right at the start, you might think. Uh, But not only that, not only is this huge, this, the scale of this miracle huge. Uh, when the master of the banquet uh, tastes it, he says this is the best wine in the building. Uh, normally, he says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. Normally, you leave the, the bad stuff till the end when perhaps people have had so much they don't taste the difference. But Jesus produces this abundant supply Uh, And it's abundantly good. It's the best stuff in the house. That's what happens uh, in this sign that John tells us. So we're going to think about two really uh, important things that this uh, wine at the wedding uh, teaches us. And the first one is this. Good wine at the wedding uh, gives credibility to Jesus' claims. Good wine at the wedding gives credibility to Jesus's claims. If you think about it just for a moment, the really obvious thing to note is that that nobody uh, but God could perform a miracle like that, especially 
on the kind of scale that it was. The sign points us to Jesus being somebody pretty special, divine. Now, I'm conscious that for some of us, uh, perhaps miracles uh, are a bit of an issue, particularly if you're a bit sceptical, or maybe you've got friends who are a bit sceptical. Often we kind of dismiss miracles uh, because they're at odds with the laws of nature, which is kind of why they're called miracles. Uh, It is against the laws of nature, isn't it, for water to be turned into wine. That's completely true. But I thought it might be helpful just for a moment to consider something that C.S. Lewis uh, once said. He was a a staunch atheist before he became a Christian, and I've adapted uh, an illustration that he gives um, which helps us to consider miracles. I've used a 50 pence piece rather than uh, a half penny because I think most lots of people won't know what that is. Uh, but he asks this question to uh, a young man he's talking to about miracles. And he says, suppose you put 50 pence into a drawer today and 50 pence into the same drawer tomorrow. Do the laws of arithmetic make it certain you'll find a pound's worth there the day after? Of course, the boy said, provided no one's been tampering with your drawer. Ah, but that's the whole point, he said. The laws of arithmetic can tell you what you will find with absolute certainty, provided that there's no interference. If a thief has been in the drawer, of course you'll get a different result. But the thief won't have broken the laws of arithmetic, only the laws of England. Now, aren't the laws of nature much in the same boat? Don't they all tell you what will happen, provided there's no interference? And he goes on and gives another uh, good illustration. He says, the laws will tell you how a snooker ball will travel on a smooth surface if you hit it in a particular way, but only provided no one interferes. This is my favourite sentence of what he says, mainly because it uses the word biff in it. He says, if... If after it's already in motion, someone snatches up a cue and gives it a biff on one side, why? Then you won't get what the scientist predicted. And his point was this. In the same way, if there was anything outside nature, he's talking about God, and if it interfered, then the events which a scientist might expect wouldn't follow. That would be what we call a miracle. I found that a really helpful little illustration, and I enjoyed the word biff. But C.S. Lewis is simply making the point that if there is a God, uh, we wouldn't be so surprised or dismissive that if he turned up, he would interfere with the way things usually play out. Now, if you're a truly open-minded person about even the possibility of God who created these laws... Uh, it's really not that difficult to believe that if he turned up, uh, that things would be able to happen like the miracles we read of in the Bible. And with that in mind, this miracle points us to the fact that Jesus is clearly interfering uh, with the usual laws. And so the conclusion you can make reasonably is that he is divine. Now, whether you're a a sceptic or you're a completely convinced Christian, Jesus forces us uh, to make a decision about him. Uh, Later on in uh, John's Gospel, uh, Jesus challenged a a group of Jewish uh, people who were challenging him about the claims that he had to be God. But Jesus challenged them back and he said, if I'm not doing the works of my father, um, 
So if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe my words and believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That's in John 10, if you wanted to look it up later. Jesus is saying, look at my works, even if you're not convinced by me just yet. You need to have an answer for them. It might also be uh, worth noting, on, um, for those who are perhaps sceptical, or perhaps if you've got sceptical friends, you might want to point this out to them, that Jesus, uh, those who were most sceptical at the time of Jesus, could never argue that he actually did these things. Uh, not once did they deny a miracle uh, or prove that it was some kind of hoax. And you find out that the, their problem was not the evidence... Uh, It was not the credibility of the things that he was doing. It was their unwillingness of heart that was really behind why they wouldn't believe. So if you are a a sceptic or you're not quite sure about these things, it's worth questioning, isn't it? Are you really truly open-minded about this whole idea of miracles? Is evidence really the problem? Or is there an underlying uh, problem to why you don't believe? I mention that because if you're a Christian and you've got sceptical friends... Uh, you might like to show them Jesus' credentials and point out some of those things uh, that he said. And it also might encourage you to pray for them uh, as well, for their hearts. Well, we've got this good wine at the wedding, and the first thing it does is give credibility to Jesus' claims. Uh, That's the first thing. It helps us to believe that Jesus really was the Christ, the Son of God, Uh, which shows us it's not wishy-washy blind belief for people who've thrown their brains out of the window. The second thing, though, is even more significant, perhaps, and it helps us to understand the incredible life uh, that we might have if we do believe in him. Uh, So secondly, good wine at the wedding signals uh, God's kingdom era arriving in Jesus. Good wine at the wedding signals God's kingdom era arriving in Jesus. We see uh, the significance when we look back to the Old Testament, and you might want to have your Bibles ready to have a flick through in a moment. Uh, There's a a number of really, really important uh, references uh, to loads of wine and really good-tasting wine as well, the kind of wine that Jesus has produced at this wedding. They all come at a time when God's people are under God's judgment in the Old Testament. They're in exile because they've persistently been ignoring him. You might remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, They get kicked out because they ignore God. Well, a similar thing has happened to God's people. They were kicked out and are under his, or were under his judgment, which shows how serious God is uh, about sin. Uh, They show us that God is just and that he's fair, that he must punish sin. And they're cut off uh, from life with their creator, the source of life. Now, before we get to look at the Old Testament, we need to recognise that's similar to our situation today. We've all gone astray. Uh, we, all of us, none of us love God as we ought to. Uh, Romans 3 tells us we all fall short of God's glory. We face his judgment. Ephesians 2 tells us even more starkly that we are dead in our sin. We stand helpless before God. And that's been the story of the human race ever since... Uh, Adam and Eve were first uh, kicked out of the garden because of their sin. If you think about the history of the world, it's really just marked uh, by the selfishness of sin, uh, 
running riot in people's lives and death. The Bible says that death reigned. Isn't that what we see in history? It was an era, if you like, with the world under God's judgment. But back to John 2 and this good wine, which signals a new era arriving in Jesus. God promises in the Old Testament, in those prophecies that I was talking about, a new era where he's going to restore his relationship with his people. And you might like to look up Isaiah chapter 25, uh, page 708. Isaiah 25, page 708, and verse 6. This is a promise uh, that God makes to his people. Twenty-five, verse six. He says, "On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces." He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. God promises a great, all-satisfying feast. He promises to swallow up death forever. He promises to remove the disgrace from his sinful people. And he promises to wipe away the tears from his people's eyes. Now, isn't that an amazing, uh, remarkable promise uh, from God? Did you notice, though, while we're looking at it, one of the signs associated with this new kingdom era is good wine and lots of it. A banquet of aged wine, the finest of wines. Uh, We've got this feast, this wedding kind of language, isn't it? It's not the only place. I've not just picked one verse in the Bible to try and justify what we're saying. You could look up Jeremiah 31 later, or Joel chapter 2. Well, let me read from Amos, which doesn't just speak about fine wine, but abundant, dripping, flowing wine. Uh, It says, Amos 9, verse 13, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip, there's so much of it, from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Now, if you're like me, your mind might not naturally have jumped back to all of those Old Testament uh, references. But for a Jewish believer, waiting for God's kingdom, those promises would have been familiar. They would have known that good wine signals God's kingdom era uh, arriving. And the disciples here, they make the connection, it seems, that it is arriving in Jesus. Verse 11, the disciples Uh, believed in him. They put their faith in him. They see uh, the credibility of his claims. They don't just close their eyes and hope that this is what's happening. They see the credibility of his claims and they understand the massive significance of it. This good wine signals God's kingdom era arriving. They believe that this man, uh, Jesus, is going to bring in this incredible new era where God restores Uh, a right relationship with his people, and they're going to enjoy his abundant blessings. 
Now just step back uh, for a moment. Doesn't what Isaiah in particular promise sound like the kind of world uh, that deep down we'd all love? The kind of world that today we mourn that we don't have. Uh, The kind of world that I imagine most of us would love to be part of. The kind of world that we'd be devastated if uh, those we most love couldn't be part of. Just imagine that world where we're satisfied uh, completely. Uh, Where death, where there isn't any. And a world where there's no crying faces uh, on the news. It's almost unimaginably uh, good, isn't it? But perhaps as you look um, at our world, we dismiss what Jesus did back then and this whole idea that he brought in a new kingdom because what we see on our TV screens and what we know in our own lives is not some all-satisfying feast taking place. There's the occasional wedding, but even then you end up with cheese and crackers rather than a pudding you want. Um, But more seriously, people are dying every day. We don't like to talk about it. And there are tears all of the time. So are we just kidding ourselves that Jesus really has brought brought God's kingdom era in? Well, it might help you to think a little bit uh, about these prophecies in the Old Testament, uh, a little bit like how you might um, approach a mountain ra- range. Sorry if you're on the uh, women's weekend a few weeks ago, or if I'm about to spoil uh, Caroline's illustration in a couple of weeks' time. I know that she used this illustration. But as you, um, if you've ever driven towards mountains, um, and you, you can see uh, the mountain range uh, on the horizon, and as you um, look, all of the mountains look together, don't they? It looks like there's just one massive uh, mountain. But when you get closer uh, and you arrive at what you thought was uh, what would all be together, you find out it's actually a little bit more spread out than you first imagined. Now, it's true, isn't it, to say when you reach that first mountain, you've reached the mountains. But at the same time, you haven't fully reached all of the mountains. Uh, They're more spread out and into the distance. Well, prophecy in the Bible works quite like that a lot of the time. Uh, And the wine at at this wedding is kind of like that first mountain. And it signals that we are there. God's kingdom has arrived in Jesus. But it's also true to say we won't expect, and we can't and shouldn't expect to see, the fullness of all that God promised in one go. There's still some mountains uh, in the distance. You might have heard it uh, put like this before, that God's kingdom, there's, kind of a, there's a now, but a not yet at the same time. Or going back to uh, our illustration, John 2, we've, we've reached the beginning of the mountains, but we've still got a way to go. Uh, it's really clear in the New Testament, God's kingdom blessings do not all come at once. But we do have a great picture of the end of the mountains. Uh, we looked at it yesterday at the wedding, at Revelation 21, we're given... Uh, this great picture of God finally fulfilling his promises to his people. Revelation uh, chapter 21. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, really talking about God's people, uh, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Notice it's another wedding. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is uh, what Christians have to look forward to. A fully restored uh, relationship with God uh, and knowing the goodness of living under his perfect rule where we too are perfect as well. But experiencing life like that is not what we're going to experience just yet. It's the Christian hope for the future. Now the question comes, doesn't it? How can we make sure that we enjoy that life in the now, but also in the not yet. And we need to go back um, to John, chapter 2, verse 4. Do you remember Jesus said, my hour has not yet come? Now we find out later on in John, Jesus was speaking about his death and his resurrection. That is his hour. And that is the point in history where, as Clive's already explained at the beginning of this service, where God makes it possible for a world of sinners deserving death to have free access to his kingdom and the hope of this kingdom to come. And in dying on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty for our sin, which is death, for sinful people like you and me. And in rising again, he proves uh, that his sacrifice worked and that it fully satisfied God's anger and wrath. God's just, he's got to punish sin. He wouldn't be fair, Uh, he wouldn't be good if he just swept sin under the carpet. That's why he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. It's why he kicked his Old Testament people out of the land of Israel. But God isn't just uh, just and fair. He's incredibly gracious and he's abundantly kind. And he shows his love for us by sending the Lord Jesus to die in our place. John refers to him earlier in the gospel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in this encounter with Jesus, uh, we see that that's why Jesus is able to offer anyone who believes, whatever their past, free access to God now, and this sure and incredible hope of an everlasting, wonderful, completely new kingdom era. I don't know about you, but it's quite exciting to think about that world, isn't it? It's wonderful. We don't have to pay a penny. We can't. It's paid not through a ceremonial washing water, interestingly enough, uh, but by Jesus' blood, which we'll remember as we drink the wine uh, in a few moments. This is an amazing uh, new kingdom Jesus makes possible for us to be part of now and completely in the not yet future. And importantly, it's not fairy tales down the garden stuff. It's a credible hope. Uh, The wine at the wedding gives credibility to Jesus' claims. Uh, It's one of his many miracles. And if if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, maybe you're a sceptic, can I encourage you to open-mindedly go and look at the rest of them uh, in John's Gospel. Don't just listen to um, the sat-nav of the world, which tells you this and tells you that, 
and completely ignore the signs that God's given us in John's Gospel. Uh, Look at them and assess them honestly. And if you are a Christian, well, be assured that what you believe is not wishy-washy. Believing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is reasonable. You can be completely confident that the hope of this new kingdom era is sure. So as you hear those um, tooth fairy comments, uh, don't let your confidence um, be dented. Uh, And if you found yourself becoming a bit lacklustre or half-hearted or shy in sharing your faith, because people make comments like that, look again at the miracles Jesus has done uh, and believe afresh who he is. Not by closing your eyes, uh, but by looking at Jesus' credentials. Look at what he's done and what he's offered us. Uh, Believe in him uh, and you can have this incredible life uh, now in part, but one day completely in the future. Let's pray. I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've uh, shown us uh, in the Lord Jesus, for all that he's done that helps us to believe uh, in the credible news of who Jesus is. We pray that you would help us to believe uh, in who he is and that we might rejoice uh, in the wonder that we can one day have this incredible life uh, in his name. We thank you that though we don't know that in full now, uh, we can know it in part, knowing our sins uh, completely forgiven and having the sure hope of eternal life. We thank you and praise you uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.